Hello people this is a Suno India production and you are listening to another episode of Beyond Charminar Hello everyone thank you for tuning into the third episode of Beyond Charminar second season so this is actually going to be a continuation of the previous podcast episode wherein Sirish Nanishetty my former boss who currently works as a reporter and senior journalist with the Hindu Sirish and I had discussed about how why Hyderabad got flooded in the recent rains that took place in October we discussed how people had built homes inside the full tank level of different lakes and why those areas had particularly gotten flooded we also spoke about the city improvement board and how hyderabad was developed after the 1908 mosi river floods and how under the last nizam near usman ali khan how the city was essentially transformed into a modern city with modern infrastructure for its time in fact sirish is also here with me uh, but this time this is going to be a conversation between three people uh, myself sirish and we have another guest that is mr anand marigandi who uh, heads hyderabad urban lab i'm sure many of you know hyderabad urban lab very well especially because of its uh, signature event do din which they do every year it has different different kinds of talks and events uh, so hul is essentially a multidisciplinary research center and they have done extensive research and extensive work on different areas especially with regard to mapping and urban infrastructure and things like that anand himself has a long history of uh, working on these subjects and and on those areas anand will be the best person to explain about his own background but more importantly anand is somebody who has seen and researched more about the city improvement board documents for example why city improvement board is because in the previous episode we also talked about the city improvement board which essentially was the uh, government body set up under the last nizam's time during the last nizam's time after the musi river floods so that you know to basically to develop to redevelop hyderabad uh, in a very modern way so just to give you a brief uh, after the 1908 musi river floods that happened during the sixth nizam's time mehboob ali pasha he died in 1911 after which his son usman ali khan became the last nizam so when usman ali khan became the last nizam he set up the cib or the city improvement board in 1912 and essentially they went about restructuring the city including slums and a lot of other things the person who they brought in specifically also to make the city flood proof after 1908 was the legendary engineer m vishweshwaraya Vishwaraya apart from suggesting to construct two dams to block water from coming into the Musi River which had flooded in 1908 those two dams are the Usman Sagar and Himayat Sagar Usman Sagar is also known as Gandipet so those two dams were built and apart from that he also suggested to you know construct or build a well planned drainage system for the city which is exactly what happened so under the city improvement board a lot of modern infrastructure was built like the Usmania Usmania General Hospital the high court city city college etc so we have anand marigandi please i hope this episode really helps you all to understand how hyderabad was built anand also will specifically talk about uh, the area of mallepalli which was actually the first quote unquote you know i would say modern or urban area that was developed even i did not know that uh, mallepalli's pin code is actually 5 lakh 1 so that is because that was one of the earliest or the earliest place that was developed uh anand will be the best person to talk more about that and we also have sirish who will discuss 
Hyderabad's planning in that sense under the last Nizam in the first half of the 20th century. Thank you, Yunus, and thank you, um, Sirish. The first thing that I think is important to keep in mind when we think about the City Improvement Board is the fact that the City Improvement Board could have been created even without the flood. It is an institutional form that uh, began in uh, the UK um, in a city called Glasgow, which is a port city where the fear of plague had resulted in embargo on the port. And so the City Improvement Board as an institutional form was created to improve the image of the city by getting rid of plague because it has very serious economic consequences for the city. Now, that institutional form travels in the empire, comes to Calcutta, comes to Bombay, comes to Hyderabad, comes to Chennai, comes to all kinds of other cities. In some places, it is called Town Improvement Trust. In some places, it is called City Improvement Board. In some places, it is even called City Improvement Trust. But it's essentially a form that is created to give legitimacy to any program that can radically transform the urban form. And that was an important part of what needed to be done in the city because at one level, a Hindu joint family's large household can actually look like a slum for someone who has not grown up and was born into that system. If you're looking at it from outside, it looks like very messy. And that was what the problem was because at one level, you needed to bring in new sanitation systems, you needed to cut open places and so on, and a whole lot of military-related and uh, medical terminology was very important in doing town planning. Uh, so, Anand, can you tell me how Hyderabad would have looked like, let's say, you know, at that point of time around 1940? So, see, by, by 1908, when the flood happened, by that time already, we have had a fair amount of growth north of the city, north of the river. Uh, you had the Chadargat, which had already grown quite large, and it was essentially a growth around the residency. And basically what happens with the place like the residency so close to the old city is that a lot of the bankers and people with money, money lenders, would move to residences closer to the residency because there's more security. Average. No, no, no. Bank Street. Bank Street. Oh, yeah. That entire area, because of the presidency, has greater security or a sense of security. And so the old moneyed people or people who deal in money in the old city all move into that area. The Troop Bazaar, the Bank Street, that entire area. So that community moves into the area around Chadargat. Chadargat is already a municipal system at that time, right? And then you have the Begum Bazar area, which already begin to develop at the beginning of the Asabjahi dynasty itself. Uh, when the Aurangzeb army came in, it was already billeted there. So they knew that that part of the northern side of the river was already, already developing. And then you had Secunderabad, which had already grown up. So between Secunderabad and Hyderabad, there was a large gap. There were not a whole lot happening. And the municipal limits by 1912-1913 were actually the road which is very close to where we are now, the inner ring road, which is the Banjara Hills Road Number 1. Banjara Hills Road Number 1 was the municipal limit. It goes up to Panjagutta, the what is now called the Nagarjuna Circle, 
and then goes further and then cuts from the Amirpet side. So that's the limit of the city. Outside of it is uh, uh, what is called Atrafe Bald, which is outside of the Baldia. And then you have in the north, of course, the Secunderabad cantonment and then beyond the cantonment, the villages that develop. So there's some commerce and some Secunderabad area that develops. But the issue really is not so much about the growth, but about the nature of the growth and the infrastructure. And by this time, you already had um, some kind of migration into the city. It was anticipated that there will be during the war, First World War, and after that with some increased production systems, there will be poorer people coming into the city. You will need more housing. What was the migration that actually happened at that point of time? There are two different types of migration around that time. The one is the, the Hindi-speaking uh, or Urdu-speaking, not the Dakini-speaking, but the Urdu-speaking people from north. That, um, there was some of that. But a lot of the migration that happened in the nearby areas was basically because of the, the distress which came because of the First World War and the contraction in the global trade. And then uh, Hyderabad was beginning to, anyway, by 1920s, uh, it would have, and the signals were all there already, that, that we have to do something to improve our economic well-being. So the, the modernization of the Hyderabad state begins in the last quarter of the 19th century with uh, Salah Jung I improving the agricultural revenue, getting rid of cutting losses, basically starting the railway so that the minerals are being exported from the coal belt of the Godavari, you know, all kinds of things begin to happen. And in 1920, Hyderabad state starts the industrial trust fund. And that's the beginning of some attempts to create state support for large industry in Hyderabad. Until then, there was no such thing. 1920. 1920-21. In conjunction with the rest of the country, was it? No, the rest of the country, things had moved far ahead. By 1920s, you already had a lot of textile industry in Kanpur. You had jute mills in Calcutta. You see, the, that kind of manufacturing capacity was something that was connected to the port. So, either you had the port or the British had a very specific interest in creating modern industrial infrastructure. Kanpur was politically of great importance to the British because Kanpur played such an important role in the 1857 uprising. So, they had to actually create industrial capacity in Kanpur. Uh, Bombay is the port. So, the Gujaratis were investing in private manufacturing apart from the British in Bombay. Calcutta was the same thing, Chennai was the same thing. Hyderabad didn't have any of that. Hyderabad was the backwaters through which the raw materials were being exported. And so by 1920, when the, the Hyderabad state begins to push for modernization and industrialization, the first things you get is on the one hand, Zinda Tilasmat, which is that blown glass, Chota Dawa on the one side. And on the other side, you have the glass factory, the cigarette factory, the cement factory. Yes, basically the process industries right you're not you're not making large consumer goods you're making processed goods and 1920 was when you get the power station here so 1920s 1930s we have the bijli ghar in hyderabad which is demonstrating what would it look like if you have electricity in your house so can you also tell us a little more about the city improvement board and uh, how it came about etc and uh how basically the city improvement board transformed Hyderabad. 
City Improvement Board was actually launched in 1912. So this is how it actually plays out, right? 1908, you have the big flood, which is called Tugiani in Hyderabad. That flood, like in most cities across the world, when you have a calamity, that always results in the unleashing of new forces of development. That's the story of Chicago, that's the story of Los Angeles, that's the story of New York, that's the story of London, that's the story of Hyderabad as well. Now, what happens is the Hyderabad state launches two very important initiatives, neither of which is actually directly connected to the CIB. And both of them were done by Mokshagundam Vishweshraya. First was the flood control plan, which is the two uh, dams outside the reservoirs outside the city. They had nothing to do with the CIB. The second is the sewage or the drainage plan for Hyderabad city. That also had nothing to do with the CIB. No. That, those were two separate engineering projects which were carried out by the state. The irrigation department and uh, uh, some other department. I'm forgetting yeah, which one. In his writing, in his autobiography, <coughs> he mentions that he passes a remark on the sewer system and that people were basically, you know, dumping stuff outside their homes. And yeah, yeah. he also recommends that build a sewer system before he leaves. Yeah, yeah. You, all of that, yes. But the city improvement board does not build the CI drainage system. So, city improvement board... City Improvement Board actually in Hyderabad had a very small role. The role was to build a few arterial roads. The role was to build some housing stock. The role was to build some uh, localities which then begin to play an important historical role. Say Malepalli. Malepalli is, is something that is built in the 40s. And uh, this is like seven years away from, from independence, right? It's not 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 that. I mean, 1920s is when CIB actually begins to do its works very seriously. So they do Yakakpura, they do Dabirpura, they do a number of places and they build some of these landmark infrastructures like uh, improving the Patkargatti, some of that work was done by CIB, then Mohsin Jahi market was some of that was done by CIB. The building opposite that the bachelor's housing was done by them, then the Malakpet housing uh, right opposite the railway track. If you go there, you will see some of those houses even now, just opposite the railway station. So, as of now, where are the uh, city improvement board houses or the, you know the homes that were essentially built post Hyderabad's modernization under the last Nizam? In all the areas where they built, there are still some traces. But the difficult thing for people to find actually is how do you uh, recognize a CIB house when you see one? It's basically the houses which, for some reason, many of them actually have never changed their colors. They're all pastel shades. The Asabjahi yellow, the uh, a light blue color. So you see those, those colors and then you have the CIB insignia on top of the house. So uh, in 1908, we had a flood. In 1911, we had a plague. And 1912, the city improvement board started. And it really transformed the city maybe within um, up to 1930. It was one of the clues to how efficient the CAB was. The first report is of five years. The second report is of nine years. And after that, they produce a report every, every year. So that gives a clue to how efficiently they are working and when did it actually pick up steam. So I wanted to know, like, 
there are two things. One, if we just talk about CIV, it won't make much sense. Right now, Hyderabad had witnessed a flood and we are still in the midst of an epidemic. Do you see any changes in the way the city can do something? We are going to have an election also. Do you see anything which the city can do to make its needs, what the city actually needs? Because all we see is talk about roads or flyovers or something. Whereas the people have been affected by nalas, lakes, rivers, floods. Many people are not even talking about Firangi Nala and the flood. So I wanted to know how should the city rethink itself because CAB is more of rethinking the city. It pushed the city from Andarun Balya to Atra. Means it's like push out. So I wanted to know is there a way the city can use this opportunity of a catastrophe to rethink itself, to mold itself, to give a better livelihood to the citizens. Like right now we are sitting behind uh, the flyer of near Tolichoki. It is one of the areas which was flooded badly because the water flowed down the slope and all that. So I wanted to know like how can the city that was used as an opportunity to rethink about 100 years back. Now 100 years later with greater amount of resources and we have an election. Is there a way the city can ask for more, demand more, get more? Let me start with what is common between that flood and this flood. The 1900 flood happened because a number of water bodies breached. It's not the water that came in the river. It's a catchment that uh, Vishweshraya describes as one which had about 800 square miles of area in which per every square mile there was one water body, 800 water bodies. And each of those water bodies is connected to another one and when one breaches, the other one is bound to breach because essentially it is a lot of water being released at one time. right? So now it's exactly the same story. It's not the water that has come in the river. It is one tank breaching or one tank overflowing and the other one then getting affected. It's basically a concatenated system and that is the nature of this terrain. That's number one. Number two, the other very important thing that we need to keep in mind is that when CIB was created, when Hyderabad state was thinking about what needed to be done, it started multiple projects. One project was flood control. One project was drainage plan. One project was housing and other infrastructure. Three very closely connected projects, all of which were coordinated by a set of closely knit and closely connected. Not that there were no tensions amongst them. They, I mean, they, they did not like each other as much as we don't like each other anymore at this point of time. But there was something that held them together with all of their personality clashes, with all of their ego clashes. They somehow figured out a way of saying that this is something that we need to do together. But it was the elite which did it. And that is something that we cannot forget, right? And the, 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 the Maivab Sarkar of, of a certain time is not what we have now, even if we pretend that that is what we have. You may have a populist government, you may have a government in which the elected leaders begin to behave like good patriarchs of, of the great times. No, but that's not how things work. You now have a much more complex terrain. Simply because of the nature of the state, 
This is not a state in which there is one single sovereign. Now, this system requires a very different articulation of information and knowledge. That means that this system actually requires people to be able to building, build up their own mechanisms for speaking. And those mechanisms which we assumed until now were available to us are not available to us in the same way anymore. And that's the problem. Because your media is supposed to do that work to some extent and it doesn't do it very well anymore. right? Your courts are supposed to be those places where those kinds of discussions and debates are supposed to happen. It doesn't happen very well there. Your electoral system and your parliament and assembly is the place where some of that is supposed to happen. It doesn't happen very well, right? So you need to figure out what is that complex terrain, space, surface, whatever you want to call it, where this articulation will happen. And I think that that is where we really now have opportunities and possibilities. And I'm not at all pessimistic about it, which is that I mean, a hundred years ago, when the CIB began its work, it's quite interesting that you note that the first report takes five years, the second report takes nine years. Why? It's because it took them five years to make the maps of the city. From 1912 to 1916, they basically went around the entire city with chains to measure every part of the city. That is how the MUN maps were created and the MUN maps were the most important part of the CIB's work. Without that map, you can't do it, right? Now, that kind of state-owned knowledge or state domain of knowledge continues to be there, but it is held by ruling parties. It's a very complicated terrain now. But at the same time, many of these technologies have become easily available for people. So it is possible for people to produce their own knowledges. And I think that is what we really need to do. The unfortunate thing about Hyderabad city now, the reason why things don't happen very well is that we've been trying to solve almost every single thing in the language of the idiom of the, 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 the exchange, the, the currency of, 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 of the market, right? So you think in terms of property. You can't solve a flood problem through a property dispute. We keep asking, is this land inside FTL or is it outside FTL? It doesn't really matter because even inside FTL, a lot of people owned property in the past. They just did not build concrete buildings. They owned it or they owned it on lease from the state or they had use rights or they had customary rights. Property rights is not a single thread. It is not a single frame. It's multiple forms. It's an entire spectrum. So this uh, uh, temporary lease or short-term, this thing, within the FTL, is it specific to the Nizam's domain or was it there across the country? There are, across the country, you will find things that seem unique, but they also have some commonalities. Right. So, for example, you go to Tamil Nadu, you will find lands called Gomala lands. What are Gomala lands? So you go to, uh, to Maharashtra, uh, you find lands called Gautam lands. Right. You find Gochar lands, you find something else, you find Chiru, Kuporambok, all kinds of names. These are, these are all names 
of different types of ecological categories that are taken into account in creating revenue categories? As an example, what you said about what I said, can you, since you were discussing about the Kulangi Nala also, can you just, in conjunction with CIB and what you are saying, can you just give an example of how the Kulangi Nala actually had an impact now so that people even can understand very clearly what exactly it means? No, the Firangi Nala was basically an irrigation system, right? It begins from Chandanavelli Dam. It's in Rangaradi. It's further um, south of uh, the Gandipet tank. From there, the water is supposed to come to Ibrahim Patnam Charu, Kadacharu. Okay. Yeah. The long Nala. It's now mostly gone, so it's actually hard to find it. It's really a very interesting exercise to do would be and one of my friends was doing this in Bangalore. He was actually doing it for lower order nalas, what he calls a stream burial. So when urbanization happens, one of the things that happens is streams are buried. Or it just completely disappears. So Firangi Nala has basically been buried in many places. It has disappeared. So Anand, what exactly is a nala? You know, nala as in what we know of is that uh, it essentially means sewer, but I'm pretty sure it is something else. It's not a water body. It's a flow. It's a stream. So basically the Nala terminology could vary from place to place, right? So in some places it is called Vagu. Vagu is bigger than the Nala in some places, but in some places Nala and Vagu are roughly the same size. So these are all common usage terms. In uh, scientific terminology, there is a ranking system called the Stroller order uh, Ordering System, where basically you have a first order stream joining with another first order stream and becoming a second order stream. A second or two second order streams can join and become a third order stream. So the first order stream would be your, uh, when you step out of your building, you see that one and a half foot gap between your property and the road. That's for the drain. When it rains, the water is supposed to go through that. That is the thing on which in most places we build that ramp for taking the scooter up, right? That's where you bury the Nala. When you build that ramp for taking your scooter up, you've you've killed your first step of killing the, the flow of water. That when it joins with another one like that, that becomes a second order one. So in many towns, you see the drainage outside of houses, open drain, that's what this is. So the Nala that we call, or the Rajakalvas in Bangalore, these are the fourth order. Seventh order would be the river. Uh, You spoke about three different interventions. One of the flood control, one of uh, decongesting and rebuilding the houses. Another is of uh, improving the sanitary conditions by adding the sewage system. So, was there a difference in the sewage system then? There, they had, did they have stormwater drains, or uh, was it included in the drainage system because it was a cheaper option? No, in in Hyderabad, the stormwater drains and sewage were kept separate. The mixing up began to happen in the seventies, and that basically happened because of the. Tremendous increase in construction and the municipal corporation's inability to extend its infrastructure. So, um, just about across the city. Is there a place where the stormwater drains are still intact? I don't think so. Uh, I'm saying this because, um, so you go to Rasulpura. 
यू विल स्टिल फाइंड पीपल हु रसुलपुरा नाला बचपन में हम इसमें नहाते थे द नाला विच इज हलकापुर नाला विच इज दन नियर पेंशन ऑफिस पीपल टेल यू दैट क्यू हम उसमें नहाते थे साफ पानी आता था सिंगर नो नो दैट नॉट दन आफ्टर दैट सो दिस इज द बलकापुर नाला विच कम्स फ्रॉम समवेयर नियर शंकरपल्ली विच वॉज सपोज टू ब्रिंग वॉटर इन टू हुसैन सागर इट कम्स वाई शेखपेट सो इन डिफरेंट लोकेशन नाउ इट इज गॉट डिफरेंट नेम्स इट इज बिकम बेरीड इन सम प्लेसेज ब्रोकन ऑफ ब्रांच पैरल स्ट्रीम्स आर बिल्ट एंड सो ऑन दिस वन नाउ गोज इन टू द एस टी पी नियर हुसैन सागर इट गोज बिलो द नासर स्कूल एंड चिंतल बस्ती and the banjara nala also joins it the two of them together go into the stp near the khairabad flyover yeah. until 80s uh, people were actually fishing in uh, many of these lakes right they stopped fishing so the 1940 housing construction so the thing the, the important thing to remember is is that uh, housing interventions in cities also always create new types of citizens and new types of social groups it always is the case singapore built it built its modern citizenship through housing development board i mean any modern state knows that that the way you build housing is the way you build citizenship you have slums which means that you're going to have subordinate citizenship it's as simple as that you have a property population you don't have a property population you have a renter population you have rentier class of people that's how you you create uh, uh, citizenship categories so mallepalli the interesting thing is that it was all the up muslims who came into hyderabad and not the old city muslims who moved into mallepalli but these are people who came into hyderabad because of their education because of their modernity they are not part of the old feudal hyderabadi they did have any new connections yes, sir sir sayed connection was definitely there so all of that was there so that's what you have in uh, mallepalli and it is that population which at the time of uh, um, independence or police action whatever you want to call it was also the most progressive because so, these were people who wanted to become part of india and they wake up they become part of india they are the progressives they are the red flag bearing communists they are the most radical of of that time and yet they suddenly find that within the next few years somehow they are not quite part of the same trajectory of modernization as the rest of india right now how do you become part of that modern indian citizenship from this tiny location called mallepalli it was a village called mallepalli now there are different versions of it there is somebody called mallaya and there is somebody called malla mallepalli part of it could have been part of the uh, secunderabad town improvement trust to a separate trust so so what did mallepalli look like since you know you told me that mallepalli was actually mallepalli actually bears the pin code 5 lakh 1 indicating that that was the first uh, modernized area that or the first area that was actually uh, developed in hyderabad when mallepalli begins this is an old village in some lands or commons of, of that village which lie lie between what is now the masab tank um, main road which is called also the imperial lancer road 
the road on which we are now is first lancer road that that road is the imperial lancer road so between that the red hills and then you know further down Nampali station ke bilkul piche agapura agapura ke bahut sare darga wagaira all of those things are there right behind them you have mallepalli mallepalli ka jama masjid hai and then around that it's a beautiful arrangement of housing very well designed many many playgrounds not just one and the design of the houses had a very distinct hyderabadi modern sensibility which then shapes the way in which families households all of them then grow over time these were all government employees yeah i mean they worked in uh, the university they worked in uh, the urdu press translation bureau of usmania university they were doctors you know all kinds of things this is the educated hyderabad the cultural elite this is the cultural elite which includes kayasts so you have the janki prasad rai marg you have uh, ram prasad um, rai who until last year used to run the clinic there so you have all of that so the kayast the urdu speaking kayast of hyderabad who is into government service who is part of the modern city building modern engineering professions all of that that's the lot that is there now that lot is also the lot which is trying to figure out how to fit into this madrasi ias officers who are coming into hyderabad and displacing the old hyderabadi administrative oh, services okay. and and the tensions were very very bizarre you know i, I remember one ias officer telling me that you so nice so 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 such sweet people um, but i was the finance secretary and i actually allocated a certain amount of money for for a department and then i met the officer on somewhere in the building and i told him that i have given you this much money and he said very respectfully that thank you very much sir aap uske sath thoda sa mera koi tijori bhi dila do give me a treasure chest he said no i am not actually giving you the currency notes right and and he said this is so strange that that the idea that that they can be a way of allocating money without actually giving any money doing bookkeeping in a modern state of a particular kind these are all things which you know the same officer also told me this very bizarre story about why hyderabadi officers would never get promoted the story was that uh, if uh, in front of a police station there is a quarrel happening then the hyderabadi policeman would just rush out and slap both of them and drag them to the nearest chai shop give them chai and then send them home and come back it's over whereas the madrasi officer will uh, open his station diary and start making an entry by the time the murder is over he catches hold of a witness and then he has a case that is already solved <laughs> so the madrasi officer gets a promotion because he has got a case which is already solved where for the other one there is no case at all to solve no but the thing is uh, because of that desire to be part of this modern state as an equal it meant a lot of hard work it meant a lot of struggle and that meant therefore that they were there in poetry they were there in writing they were there in sports they were there in cinema this whole janta thing that you just said this continued up so until when was until when was mallepalli you know the place like the until 80s Quite yeah yeah it's so only in the ni- it's only in the 80s that the next generation begins to take over the anwarulum college which was built precisely for this purpose that we needed to produce that modern hyderabadi 
right? By by 1980s, you have a completely new generation. The city itself has changed. Everything around the city has changed. So, what happened to the old generation of older generation of Malayali? As in, did they did those people move out or? Yeah, a lot of people moved out because the old houses have now gone. You now have apartments there. Farhan's mother, Farhan's father, they're all from Malayali. Farhan's grandfather, Farhan's mother's father. is a very important uh, uh, anchor for urdu poetry in the city and shabana's means mother of course she was also from there yeah. Yeah. not not in mallepalli proper just behind mallepalli means tarambag then uh, tabu is also from there but the one that is not very well known is uh, nigar sultana mughal azam vamp role <laughs> the vamp role in mughal azam I remember talking to one old man in Malayalam. He said, "Sab, unka naakhon dekne ke liye hum taras rahe the. Kirki ke pas latakte the." So, can you give us your background, not from where, how you ended up to Ashwal? I just want people to hear it from you. Hmm. I was actually a. I studied engineering, Usmania University, seventy nine to nineteen eighty three. Then I went off to Ahmedabad. um from amdabad uh, where i was studying industrial design um i moved into uh, communication design from there i went to madhya pradesh and this was the time when the bhopal gas leak happened so i went to madhya pradesh i worked in a experimental farm for a couple of years in a area which was completely dominated by coal mines and paper mills so we were doing a lot of local history studies there and i from there i came back and then joined uh, the deccan chronicle and then moved into indian express and quit uh, mainstream journalism in 96 end of 96 uh, early 97 i went i went off to rajasthan became the bureau chief of indian express there and i came back and set up the indian express uh, bombay group office here and after that i quit by 96 97 indian journalism had changed completely um it's like uh, i entered the space around the time when the change was beginning to happen and the signal for us was the takeover of times of india by samir jain that is where the world began to change and uh, in the next 7 8 years when that one cycle of it was completed uh, we had already begun to see uh what seemed like a very bizarre situation which is that you have one editor and that editor then moves from one publication to another publication along with some 10 20 people right and and that basically meant that your bachavat act doesn't matter anymore um bachavat act doesn't matter anymore but much more importantly editor becomes a lot more pliable and the publishers uh, uh, multiple stakes become um, visible in the print media so that was the the shift that had happened so there were several of us who quit around 96 97 we moved into different things some of us went back into journalism after a couple of years of sabbatical to try and figure out what to do i did not because uh, by 97 i became uh, busy with uh, the committee of concerned citizens which was doing the documentation which was meant for bringing together some kind of a conversation between the ml groups and the state government 
So for three years, I basically did that work. And it could not be done through the civil liberties groups here. It treated a very different formation. So for three years, that's what I did. And it was not very difficult to make a living because this was the time when the dot-com boom had begun. You know, everybody was treating websites as domain names as real estate. HUL happened much later. So I, I did all of this and then... By early 2000, I knew that uh, something had changed around in my world and I had no language to describe what was happening. So I needed a new language, conceptual language, and so I decided to go and do a PhD. So I went to the University of Minnesota to do a PhD in geography. I did that, then I went to to work in uh, Singapore, National University of Singapore for a couple of years, came back. And once I came back, the... Main issue for me was I didn't know whether it would make any sense for me to go into a university to become a faculty member because I was already well past my 40s. I went directly to a PhD program because in the US uh, academic system, you actually go in for the longer haul. You say that you want to do a PhD and if you are... Uh, uh, statement of purpose or if your proposal is convincing enough, then you are actually preferred way more than someone who says, I want to do a short sprint towards a master. So then you are taken on and then you finish your master's along the way because that has to be done. The master's is, is, is not something that has to be done separately. It's part of the PhD program. And the American PhD is a lot is very different from all other PhDs because it's basically a very confusing process. It's like you go in, you bang your head, you get depressed, you don't know what you're doing. But at the end of it, you emerge with clarity of your own. And that's a lot better than clarity that is provided to you by someone else. So once once I'm clear about what my life is all about, then I can deal with anything else. So if, when I did that PhD, at that time, my, a large part of my PhD work was on cities in North America and Western Europe and about how things were changing. My PhD itself was on Indian cities. Part of what happened in this process was that uh, I was involved in a number of research projects where we were asking a question about how do you produce urban theory which is not caught up in Western academia. And my department was a very radical department and it supported experiments like that. So a large part of what happened subsequently was that if I want to uh, theorize the urban or the city from a Hyderabadi standpoint, what, the, what would that be? What can I say about the world from Hyderabad? And that in, involves two very important moves, right? First, that you must recognize that it depends where you stand that there is no universal truth that applies everywhere. So you need to recognize that your situatedness, your standpoint matters. The second thing is that what exactly is specific or unique to Hyderabad with, without making it a Hyderabadi exceptionalism. And the, the beauty of it was that when I first came to Hyderabad for doing some of that research work, I met this old gentleman who told me that, you know, if you run into anyone who says that uh, there is a Hyderabadi identity, we are Hyderabadis, run in the other direction.
थैंक यू फॉर ट्यूनिंग इन टू दिस एपिसोड ऑफ स्नो इंडिया एंड यू कैन हियर दिस पॉडकास्ट ऑन स्नो इंडिया डॉट इन एंड अदर प्लेटफॉर्म्स